Chapter thirty three of the Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter thirty three. They found the job. It needed an apprenticeship of only six weeks, during which period George was to receive fifteen dollars a week. After that he would get twenty-eight. This settled the apartment question, and Fanny was presently established in a greater contentment than she had known for a long time. Early every morning she made something she called, and believed to be, coffee, for George, and he was gallant enough not to undeceive her. She lunched alone in her kitchenette, for George's place of employment was ten miles out of town, on an interurban trolley line, and he seldom returned before seven. Fanny found partners for bridge by two o'clock almost every afternoon, and she played until about six. Then she got George's dinner clothes out for him. He maintained this habit, and she changed her own dress. When he arrived, he usually denied that he was tired, though he sometimes looked tired, particularly during the first few months, and he explained to her frequently, looking bored enough with her insistence, that his work was fairly light and fairly congenial, too. Fanny had the foggiest idea of what it was, though she noticed that it roughened his hands and stained them. Something in those new chemical works, she explained to casual inquirers. It was not more definite in her own mind. Respect for George undoubtedly increased within her, however, and she told him that she had always had a feeling he might turn out to be a mechanical genius or something. George assented with a nod, as the easiest course opened to him. He did not take a hand at bridge after dinner. His provisions for Fanny's happiness refused to extend that far, and at the table he was a rather discouraging boarder. He was considered affected and absurdly upstage by the one or two young men and the three or four young women who enlivened the elderly retreat, and was possibly less popular there than he had been elsewhere during his life, though he was now nothing worse than a coldly polite young man who kept to himself. After dinner he would escort his aunt from the table in some state, not wholly unaccompanied by a leerish wink or two from the wags of the place and he would leave her at the door of the communal parlours and card-rooms, with a formality in his bow of farewell which afforded an amusing contrast to Fanny's always voluble protests. She never failed to urge loudly that he really must come and play just this once, and not go hiding from everybody in his room every evening like this. At least some of the other inhabitants found the contrast amusing, for sometimes, as he departed stiffly toward the elevator, leaving her still entreating in the doorway, though with one eye already on her table, to see that it was not seized, a titter would follow him, which he was no doubt meant to hear. He did not care whether they laughed or not. And once, as he passed the one or two young men of the place, entertaining the three or four young women, who were elbowing and jerking on a settee in the lobby, he heard a voice inquiring quickly as he passed, "'What makes people tired?' "'Work?' "'No.' "'Well, what's the answer?' Then, with an intentional outbreak of mirth, the answer was given by two loudly whispering voices together. "'A stuck-up boarder!' George didn't care. On Sunday mornings Fanny went to church, and George took long walks. He explored the new city, and found it hideous, especially in the early spring, before the leaves of the shade-trees were out. Then the town was fagged with the long winter, and blackened with the heavy smoke that had been held close to the earth by the smoke-fog it bred. Everything was damply streaked with the soot, the walls of the houses, inside and out, the grey curtains at the windows, the windows themselves, the dirty cement and unswept asphalt underfoot, the very sky overhead. Throughout this murky season he continued his explorations, never seeing a face he knew. 
for on Sunday those whom he remembered, or who might remember him, were not apt to be found within the limits of this town, but were congenially occupied with the new outdoor life which had come to be the mode since his boyhood. He and Fanny were pretty thoroughly buried away within the bigness of the city. One of his Sunday walks, that spring, he made in a sour pilgrimage. It was a misty morning of belated snow-slush, and suited him to a perfection of miserableness, as he stood before the great dripping department store which now occupied the big plot of ground where once had stood both the Amberson Hotel and the Amberson Opera House. From there he drifted to the old Amberson block, but this was fallen into a backwater. Business had stagnated here. The old structure had not been replaced, but a cavernous entryway for trucks had been torn in its front, and upon the cornice, where the old separate metal letters had spelt Amberson Block, there was a long billboard sign, Dugan Storage. To spare himself nothing, he went out National Avenue and saw the piles of slush-covered wreckage where the mansion and his mother's house had been, and where the Major's ill-fated five new houses had stood, for these were down too, to make room for the great tenement already shaped in unending lines of foundation. But the fountain of Neptune was gone at last, and George was glad that it was. He turned away from the devastated site, thinking bitterly that the only Amberson mark still left upon the town was the name of the boulevard, Amberson Boulevard. But he had reckoned without the city council of the new order, and by an unpleasant coincidence, while the thought was still in his mind, his eye fell upon a metal oblong sign upon the lamp-post at the corner. There were two of these little signs upon the lamp-post, at an obtuse angle to each other, one to give passers-by the name of National Avenue, the other to acquaint them with Amberson Boulevard. But the one upon which should have been stenciled Amberson Boulevard exhibited the words Tenth Street. George stared at it hard. Then he walked quickly along the boulevard to the next corner and looked at the little sign there. Tenth Street. It had begun to rain, but George stood unheeding, staring at the little sign. Damn them, he said finally, and turning up his coat collar, plodded back through the soggy streets toward home. The utilitarian impudence of the city authorities put a thought into his mind. A week earlier he had happened to stroll into the large parlour of the apartment-house, finding it empty, and upon the centre table he noticed a large, red-bound, gilt-edged book, newly printed, bearing the title, A Civic History, and beneath the title the rubric, Biographies of the Five Hundred Most Prominent Citizens and Families in the History of the City. He had glanced at it absently, merely noticing the title and subtitle, and wandered out of the room, thinking of other things, and feeling no curiosity about the book. But he had thought of it several times since, with a faint, vague uneasiness. And now, when he entered the lobby, he walked directly into the parlour where he had seen the book. The room was empty, as it always was on Sunday mornings, and the flamboyant volume was still upon the table, evidently a fixture as a sort of local almanac de gotha or Burke, for the enlightenment of tenants and boarders. He opened it, finding a few painful steel engravings of placid, chin-bearded faces, some of which he remembered dimly. But much more numerous, and also more unfamiliar to him, were the pictures of neat, aggressive men, with clipped short hair and clipped short moustaches, almost all of them strangers to him. He delayed not long with these, but turned to the index, where the names of the five hundred most prominent citizens and families in the history of the city were arranged in alphabetical order, and ran his finger down the column of A's. Abbott, Abbott, Abrams, Ackers, Albertsmeyer, Alexander, Allen, Ambrose, Amble, Anderson, Adams, 
Adams, Adler, Andrews, Appenbach, Archer, Arsman, Ashcraft, Austin, Avey. George's eyes remained for some time fixed on the thin space between the names Allen and Ambrose. Then he closed the book quietly, and went up to his own room, agreeing with the elevator boy on the way that it was getting to be a mighty nasty wet and windy day outside. The elevator boy noted nothing unusual about him, and neither did Fanny when she came in from church with her hat ruined an hour later. And yet something had happened a thing which, years ago, had been the eagerest hope of many, many good citizens of the town. They had thought of it, longed for it, hoping acutely that they might live to see the day when it would come to pass. And now it had happened at last. Georgie Miniver had gotten his comeuppance. He had gotten it three times filled and running over. The city had rolled over his heart, burying it under, as it rolled over the majors and buried it under. The city had rolled over the Ambersons, and buried them under to the last vestige, and it mattered little that George guessed easily enough that most of the five hundred most prominent had paid something substantial to defray the cost of steel engraving, etc. The five hundred had heaved the final shovelful of soot upon that heap of obscurity wherein the Ambersons were lost forever from sight and history. Quicksilver in a nest of cracks. Georgie Minifer had got his comeuppance but the people who had so longed for it were not there to see it, and they never knew it. Those who were still living had forgotten all about it, and all about him. End of chapter 33